0: We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 10. We finished up last time and we were looking through verses 16 through 23, the last portion of the chapter there. We got to about verse 20 talking about uh, how Christ was commanding his disciples that they were going to be sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we talked about the kind of offensive and defensive weapons that they had we discussed kind of it's an interesting thing for Christ to be sending them out in this way, being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, being sent out as sheep and not as some kind of battering ram or army or anything of that nature. Just the whole philosophy behind which Christ is sending out his first group of missionaries here is pretty, pretty uh, interesting. We talked about that one of their main weapons they were carrying was the gospel, which was the gospel of peace. And we talked about the peace of God, peace with men. And we discussed those things. And obviously, we're past the time that we celebrate Christmas. We're past the coming of Jesus Christ, coming of the Prince of Peace and his kingdom of peace, which, as it says in the Isaiah section, that his kingdom and his peace would have no end. So... We hope that we can dwell and think on those things as we go into the new year. Obviously, I hope that we have a more peaceful new year. Uh, So maybe that can be on top of our prayer list. But he continues on after he reads through that section of Scripture from 13 down to 20 and talking about being delivered up to the kings and the councils and the places where they were going to be delivered up for preaching the gospel. He goes on and says, "For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brothers shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another." For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more valuable than many sparrows. "...whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household." He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. So it's a large section of scripture, but hopefully we'll be able to close out this chapter. When we're looking at this, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, and obviously it's one thought going back to what we covered previously. And again, Christ is kind of giving a big picture of what's going to happen here with his disciples as they go out for the first time in this kind of missionary uh, format. And he's sending them out, and we talked about that sending out the 12 apostles, also sending out the 70 disciples. So there's you know a lot of people going out at this point in time to start hitting every city and preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, prepare the way of the Lord. And, of course, Jesus typically would follow after them and also come to these cities. And there's stuff here that we talked about last time, but there's some of this that seems like it's very now timely relevant. Some things that were probably fulfilled by the time Christ was crucified, and there's some things that kind of smack of future stuff when he talks about being delivered up to kings and to the Gentiles. Well, that wasn't in this immediate time. They were only going to Jewish cities at this point. But he goes on and he says, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, the father of the child. The child shall rise up against his parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye to another one. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Again, seems like a more timely Now application is going to happen because obviously you could think of this as the end times when the son of man comes. But that would kind of not work with the fact that he says that you shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the son of man comes. Well, obviously we know they made it all over Israel and beyond. They made it to Britain and they made it to China and they made it to. So this is probably more applicable in just this period while Christ is still on the earth. But there is a principle that's kind of taught here. A couple of principles. First, as he says, the son shall deliver of the father and the daughter, the mother, and all of these things are going to come about. And it doesn't sound like a very happy, family-friendly home, does it? Sounds like there's a little division here. Kind of this is the beginning of Christ's teachings that, yes, I have brought a kingdom of peace, but I have not brought a peace among all men that transcends everything in that sense. So there's still division He has brought peace beyond all things that does transcend among all racial groups and ethnicities and countries and political or socioeconomical divisions. He has brought that peace and brought down the middle wall of partition, but there's still a variance between believers and non-believers. And so he says, there's going to be believers within your household and there's going to be non-believers within your household. There's going to be sons that go against fathers and daughters that go against mothers. He says, so I have brought peace, but I have not brought peace like you're thinking. In this way, I've actually brought a sword. There's going to be a dividing. There's going to be differences. There's going to be disagreements about Christ between family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, synagogue rulers. But I think what's important is he's going to use the the family unit and it as the kind of recurring theme here through these verses because that's probably the diff- most difficult one to get over, okay? So he he zeroes in on the family unit because he knows those are the closest, most intricate ties that we have as human beings and even more so in this middle eastern culture i mean family was it i mean you had your own tribe your own kin they were it 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 transcended all other things you could have um family band together and they could go against anyone everyone all other previous what you'd call social ties The, the family was above all you didn't go against the family very godfathering okay you know don't go against the family never stand against the family family is everything Well, here he's saying there's going to be fighting within the family over Christ. There's going to be times when people are not going to agree over Christ, that you're actually going to be set at variance against one another because of Christ. And so he says that, and this is reiterated in Micah, or actually I should say it's preiterated in Micah 7, 6, where he says, the son dishonored the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So in Micah is prophesying about this coming day when, when the kingdom of God comes, when Christ comes, when the shepherd comes, then there's going to be some division that is going to happen. So he says that there's this temporary example here, or temporal example, I guess you could say, one that's coming right here immediately for them, but there's also, there. this extends beyond, and there's also the idea of fleeing from the persecution, too, that, yes, he was telling them this immediate group that's going out right now, but it is kind of a principle that is going to carry out from here. Now, everything he told them was not reiterated and prescribed for all other, you know, missionary adventures in that way, but he does give this idea of fleeing persecution, but I want us to examine that in the context and then also the context of greater scripture. Christ's description here of fleeing persecution from city to city is not the idea that when things don't go your way, you turn and run. Okay. It wasn't that, well, if you go somewhere and they don't receive you well and you're just not easily accepted and people don't like what you have to say, will just give up and turn away and say, well, the Lord will take care of them. This follows along a lot with what he was describing as being sheep in the midst of wolves. The, the way that he was sending them out was that we were being sent out not in a combative point of view. So he's telling them to turn away from persecution in the sense that you don't retaliate against persecution. Okay. So it's not just that when things get tough, you leave because, and you say, well, where, where am I getting all this? Okay. So when you look at, at, at acts and you look at the travels of Paul, when Paul went into the sea, there was rarely a city he went into that. Everyone accepted him and said, Paul, we love what you got to say. Come on in brother. Come have dinner with us. Most of the time he was persecuted. Now, in many occasions, he was persecuted and stayed. Some occasions, the persecution got so bad that he left. But I do want to note that nearly every one of those cities that he fled from persecution, he always came back to. We looked at this when we saw this in Acts when we were going through it. You would see him go through Lystra and Derby and these places. And yes, they were run out of the the city on a rail. But then a few verses or a few chapters later, Paul would say, I'm going to go back to Lystra and Derby and Philistine. I'm going to go back to these areas and I'm going to strengthen up the brethren there. So sometimes you can take this flee from persecution and people will take it to an extreme of, well, what God is teaching is that when you go to try to preach or teach the gospel to a place, that there's just going to be people who don't, they don't accept it. And if they don't, that's okay. Move on to the next city. God will take care of them anyway. It doesn't matter. But that's not what's being taught here or really anywhere in the Bible. He says, we continue to serve and preach and teach the kingdom wherever. And yes, there's going to be persecution. We don't flee from persecution as a thing of saying, well, guess God just didn't want me to be there. Guess this is just God's way of telling me that he didn't want me to preach here. So, yeah, well, Because whenever I preach the gospel, it's going to be easy and accepted and no one's going to stand against me. And that's how I know it was of God. If there's persecution there, then obviously this is God telling me that it's not the right time and I just need to walk away. And that's not what's being taught ever. He says persecutions are going to come. Here he's telling them to flee these persecutions again. Not that they're supposed to turn away from difficult situations. But that what he was trying to instill amongst these brethren was that you do not retaliate against persecution. I'm not sending you out as an army. I'm not sending you out to beat people up with the gospel. I'm not sending you out to retaliate and have debates and, and get into all these disagreements. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sending you that. If, it's, if this is how it's going, I want you to leave them alone. So he was telling them like where he's talking about, because he just was talking about this with his family. He didn't say, well, when your son rises up against you for the gospel, well, then you make sure you put him in his place. And you make sure you beat your son or you get him right. Or when your mother in law rises. I mean, all these, he's teaching a passivity in this way. Much as what he taught when Peter cut off, you know, Malchus's ear, he made the same thing. He said, This is not what my kingdom's about. It's not about swords. It's not about beating people up. It's not about conquering. He said, I'm already a conqueror. What are you gonna do with that sword, Peter? What kind of what kind of enemies of the gospel are you gonna slay with that sword, Peter? I'm God. I'm Jesus. I slay them in my manner with my sword. I cut to the heart. So he says when you come up against these hard seasons, you're not supposed or these hard situations. It's not that we are fleeing because we are weak or we're fleeing because we are trying to avoid anything tough in the kingdom of God. We're fleeing in the sense of turning away from the persecution, turning away from anger, turning away from malice, turning away from contention in that way. But much like we saw with, with the Apostle Paul, that's not meaning that we never come back, we never turn around, we never revisit the situation, we never try again. There's always a perseverance or a persistence in continuing to try and tell or show or teach people about the gospel. So he goes on and he says that we are pe- or to remember that we are peacemakers. That's what we were described as. That's the sheep analogy as well as what Christ says. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. That is what our title is. Not freedom fighters, okay, but peacemakers. So that's kind of the idea behind this persecution issue is that we're not here to be freedom fighters. We're not here to slay our persecutors. We're here to try to convince them of the peace of the gospel. So you have to take it in a different approach. Sometimes we want to take that idea of, well, if I can just beat people up enough, well, they'll get it. Well, no, sometimes it doesn't work that way. And most of the time what people marvel at the most is our peaceableness, our compassion, our love, our forgiveness, our mercy. And he goes on to describe what they can expect. And again, he does this when he tells his disciples that I am persecuted. I, there are going to be tribulations that are going to come. You know, he already gives them kind of a foretaste of what they're going to face. Here he does the same thing. You are the disciple of the master. Well, the master has been called basically Satan. The master has been said he's operating by bills above the prince of devils. So don't get offended when you get name called as well. It happened to me. And the disciple is not above his master. It's not like you, what he's saying there is, it's not like you're exempt from this. If your master has been called these things, we'll just expect you will be called that or worse. But he says, that's not a reason to stop what you're doing. It's not a reason to tuck tail and run. He says, fear them not. Therefore, fear them not. Don't be afraid of what they're going to say about you. Don't be afraid of what they're going to threaten you for. In fact, expect it. When it happens, just say, well, you know, this is is prophecy fulfilled. God said it was going to happen, and here it is. It's happening. And almost, it it kind of clues us in that we're on the right path in some ways. If I'm following Jesus and I'm getting getting name called or whatever because I'm following Jesus, well, I should just feel like I'm in good company because Jesus had the same thing happen to him. He says, fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness that speak you in light and what, I, what you hear in the ear preach upon the housetop. He's saying instead of hiding from these things, instead of fear driving you into a corner or into a closet to keep your mouth shut or continue to maybe We're just going to do this in secret. We're going to keep this hidden. I'm going to not really talk this too loud about this. He says, no, on the contrary. On the contrary, if you're being threatened, then you stand on the housetop and you preach it. If you're being threatened, If you're being called names because of what you do, if you're called a whatever, whatever, you know, slanderous terms, which again, when we talk about persecution, if all you're really getting persecuted by is getting called dirty names because you're a Christian, then really we need to kind of suck it up a little bit because there's people whose heads are being chopped off for it. But when you're talking about these kind of these, this, this fear or intimidation factor, what Christ is saying is know the contrary. What I tell you, what you see in the gospel, what you hear preached, you don't just hide it and keep it to yourself because you're afraid people are going to call you names or persecute you. Instead, all the more you stand up and you proclaim it boldly, hiding nothing. Because he says, fear them not, which can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So he makes a point here. He says, who are we really to be afraid of? Who are we fearing here? Say, well, I'm fearing man because man can kill me. Well, all man can kill is your body. That's, right. That's all they can kill. They can destroy this temple. As Paul says, you can tear this temple down. You can tear down my body. And when I close my eyes, I wake up in the presence of the Lord. So whether I'm dead or alive, I'll serve the Lord. Because either way, it's it's just as good. So here he says, don't fear men who can kill the body. That aren't able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. That's the sovereign Lord of all. So if we're ever wondered what the fear of God looks like, well, this is the fear of God, okay? This is realizing who God is and the control and the power that God has. God is the master. God has the power. God is the one that can destroy both body and soul. God is the one that created it and God can take it away. I mean, these these things fall back to realizing and recognizing who God is what authority he has again because sometimes we get the you get the fear of God thing and sometimes we want to shy away from these scary sounding things want to say oh it's just that's just reverential you're just in awe of him because he is lord kind of like Isaiah with the train filling the temple well there's a reverential awe to it but there's also a straight up fear to it in this very clear cut case this is Jesus talking he tells you to be afraid of the god that can destroy your body and your soul in hell. And that's not like we are fearing and trembling in the sense of worrying that a vengeful, angry, wrathful God is going to somehow push the button on us one day and we're all going to go to hell and burn. Because we know that, again, when we're talking about this, we also recognize His covenant relationship with us that He establishes. It says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm never abandoning you. I'm in this for the long run. So there's the other aspects of God that hold him into his mercy and his compassion and his love. But there very much needs to be a fear of God, okay? A fear of God in retribution and punishment for what we have done, okay? So people want to have, again, this idea of grace is great and grace covers all things. But there's a time when God says, yes, and there's also judgment and wrath and chastisement and punishment. And I'm the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So you just remember who I am and the power that I have. But he says, don't fear men in that way, which is a very difficult thing to do. You know, I think it's again, there's so much so much we've talked about too about just the natural propensity of ourselves to want to want to focus on what man can do rather than what god can or has already done again we are so enraptured or marvel at the things that man can do okay we marvel at the mysterious you know we were talking about this on wednesday nights about why do why, do we, why are we enraptured or why are we captivated by mysterious and mystical, magical things, okay? You know, we were talking about this from Exodus when Moses was throwing down rods and turning them into snakes and all this stuff. It's like, why would we, Why would God use that? And why do men marvel at that and go, oh my goodness, look at what they did. They turned a rod into a snake and all this. And why does that captivate our attention? And it's, I think very much it is the natural fallen state of man to be so so inclined to go after the mysterious magical things of man than to be in all and utter wonder about the marvelous things that God has already done. Okay. So again, you're looking up at stars in the sky and atoms that are spinning together in perfect harmony that God constantly holds together. And we're like, Oh, and some man threw down a rod and turned it into a snake. Ooh, what's going on there? You know, or, David Copperfield makes the Statue of Liberty disappear and all of a sudden everybody's just their minds are blown. Well, let's let's have your minds blown over the fact of a God who opened a Red Sea. I mean, there's 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 a plenty of more interesting things with God to be enraptured about. But I think here we why do we why would we fear men if we have enough cognitive ability, just from an intellectual scientific point of view, okay? God would always trump anybody else as far as power goes. If we're going to put him in a scientific box with man and everything else we can do. Oh man can split the atom and create a nuclear bomb. Great. God can just think and everything dissolve into nothingness. Everything. Everything. He's got to keep everything in process. Him just drawing back a little bit would have atoms spinning off in all sorts of different places and things dissolving into goo and stuff just ceasing to be like not being there anymore. That's the power of God. So just from a rational point of view, you'd say, which one should you fear? The one who can lob a nuclear weapon from North Korea or the one who can just blink and everything that you have on or are a part of disappear in an instant? Well, just from a rational point of view, God would always trump that, right? So to fear man, though, tends to be our natural propensity. We have a fear of the ones who are around us that we fear, feel are tangible. Okay? We fear those who are around us. We fear our social groups. We fear our families. We fear our, uh, the judgments of people that we are around that we know. We feel sometimes that God is so far away and he's not really involved and it's all mysterious and ethereal and all these things. But man, that person not saying hey to you at the Walmart line, that is something you can really palpably feel. But what he tells us is the the real place we should have our fear placed is in the God who is really in control. Man's opinions are fleeting and worthless. But the opinion of God is eternally weighted. So he goes on and he says, in continuing with this, why are you going to fear man? And he says, "Think about God. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, which is basically like a penny? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore; ye are more valuable than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven." Now. Again, the sparrow was, a, as you can say, two sparrows are sold for a farthing. So, again, if we're keeping the penny analogy, that's two for one penny, okay? One penny. You would not really, you don't see a two for one deal going on with a penny, right? Okay. Maybe two-for-one deal on an iPhone, two-for-one deal on something that you think are pretty valuable, and you go, hey, that's really worth it. If someone's telling, selling two-for-one and it's a penny, you probably are assuming that this thing is worth nothing, okay? In fact, it's worth about half of nothing, all right? So when you think about it in that way, sparrows were like the cheapest animals, all right? We'd almost think about this like you go to a city and you see pigeons everywhere, all right? People would not really consider pigeons to be that worthy of an animal, okay? Nobody's really fighting over the pigeons. When you're talking about selling two sparrows for a farthing, they're basically basically saying those are the cheapest birds, and that was one of the cheapest kind of sacrificial birds. Poor people who didn't have the ability to buy, I guess, more high-priced animals like uh, lambs or doves or things like that, well, you could always go get a couple of sparrows and chip in and you'd be able to do your sacrifice. Well, here he is saying these two essentially worthless animals. He says, not one of them shall fall on the ground without your father saying God almighty, who is again, holding these molecules together by the power of his word. It says that two sparrows, one sparrow will not fall to the ground without your father saying that the sparrow being so insignificant and so essentially worthless in the eyes of man, in the eyes of the sacrificial system, it has no real value. If you saw two sparrows fall to the ground, you would not look at them and go, oh my goodness, it's two sparrows. Now, two bald eagles, we go, okay, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, that's a bald eagle. They're rare, they're priceless, and they're endangered and all these things. Two sparrows are going to be like, yeah, it's just another day. All right. Two pigeons get hit by a car in New York. Nobody's really shedding any tears. Nobody's going, oh no, these two pigeons, what are we going to do? Yet, in the description of Jesus Christ, as he is describing here these worthless animals that nobody takes account of, he says, there's not a one of them that falls to the ground that your father doesn't know about, isn't involved with. In other places, he'll talk about him providing food for the ravens. Okay. And we talk about how God is the provider for these animals in this way. Now there's probably uh, natural things that he set in order. I don't know if he literally comes down and runs by a Kroger and you know, takes a basket of food over to the sparrows. But he provides, as he describes himself, he is a provider for the animals. And that's why he says, why, why do you not think I won't provide for you? You know, I take care of sparrows. I take care of ravens. You, I do feel, are more important, so why would I not take care of them? The sparrows here, he says, not one of them falls to the ground without your father. God is even involved with the sparrows, okay? You know, there's, there's an idea behind that that is pretty... I guess it should make all of us take a little bit of comfort in knowing that if you just felt really low on yourself today... Okay, and thought, well, I'm worthless, worthy, uh, worthy, you know, I'm unworthy of anything. I'm a worthless person. I have no value. Okay. Well, if you feel like the lowest of all people in the world, I would still put you above a sparrow. And God even cares about the sparrows. So even you and your lowliest, worthless of states is still more worthy than a sparrow. And God cares for a sparrow. He takes care of a sparrow and not one falls to the ground without him knowing it. God takes care of ravens. Again, not really animals high on the uh, love of humanity list, but even God provides for them. So he goes forward and he says, "...but the very hairs of your head are all numbered..." Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Now, I'm glad he didn't, you know, put too many descriptors on that and say, well, you're more valuable than five sparrows, but six sparrows, you know, well, we're not sure. Many sparrows leaves that open for a lot of interpretation. Many could be thousands, millions, billions, who knows? Maybe one of us is equivalent to a billion sparrows. Maybe that's how God's math works. But I think he does make a point of the minutia of his care for us. The intimate details that are important to God. You know, sometimes we think things are too small for God and we don't want to pray to God because it's just too small of a matter or it's not important or how much does God really care about my life? Well, he numbered the hairs on your head. So how much do you think he cares? Have you ever counted all the hairs on your head? Have you ever numbered them all? Because God has. You say, well, he's God. It's easy for him to do. Math doesn't really struggle for him. And I get that, okay? As of someone who struggles with math, I really get that, okay? But that's not the point. The point being made is that God cares enough about the hairs on your head to number them. Think about that just for a second in like the grand big picture. What astronomical consequences could it possibly have that God would need to number the hairs on your head. In yeah. the big scheme of keeping this world spinning around the sun and everything going on in the history of human race, in salvific history, all of these things, what importance is the numbering of the hairs of your head? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. He didn't say that only people who have 1,346 hairs on their head are allowed in the heaven. And he didn't say that it takes 2,448 to keep the world spinning. It is an insignificant fact that he has the numbers of your hair, the numbers of your hair numbered. Okay, it's insignificant in the sense that there is no causal relationship to counting your hair. What is significant about it is, is that the God of the universe that is keeping all of those things going is so intimately involved in his creation and cares so much about them that he cares to even do it. Yeah. To even, not even just to do it, but also to bring it out in holy inspired scripture spoken by the son of God who came to save us, to tell us, hey, I've numbered your hair your hair. That's really twisting my tongue right now. I've numbered your hair. Okay? Now, I've known you before the foundation of the world. I've loved you before the foundation of the world. I've sent my son in a messianic, prophetic time at the right specific time to come and save you from your sins, deliver you from hell, give you a home in eternity, and I have counted the hairs on your head. (laughs) I mean, that is the the level of detail and intimacy with us is beyond explanation and he says i consider you more worthy of all of my creation I consider you more worthy. We've discussed this too about the imago day, about the image of God, as he says that humanity bears the image of God, and that's why, as we've looked at back over in, uh, in Exodus and, and Numbers and Leviticus, that you know there is the, the or Genesis, actually, I should say, that the capital punishment for murder, the reason that capital punishment for murder existed, was because he says when you kill someone, you are killing the image of God, and therefore you deserve death. Okay. So the image of God thing in humanity, that is his, this is again a reiteration of that in scripture, Jesus saying that God has a care and an intimacy and a worth in humanity than he does in all the sparrows in the world. Okay, there is something different about us. This again translates into all of the reasons why we hold to things like pro-life and that's not just pro-life as in we're okay. We're pro-life for babies while they're in the womb. But then when they come out, you can be homeless and immigrants and uh, refugees and all this stuff. We don't care anything about you. You know, that's okay. You deal with that. That's, that falls under the, the boundaries of governmental stuff. But then, I mean, it, when you're in the womb, we're all for you. But after that, it's somebody else has got to deal with it. That's No, It's everything. That's why we don't believe in slavery. That's why we don't believe in trafficking. That's why we fight against persecution in all forms. Because it is a destruction. It is a fight for the image of God. That's why we say we believe that everyone has the, the respect due to them. Just as we've been talking about through all this. When you're praying for your enemies, okay, you are you are living out the belief of the image of God being in everyone. That no one falls out of the category of they don't deserve my prayers, they don't deserve my blessings, they don't deserve... They are a worthless human being, they don't deserve... Any, you know, these are, those are all the arguments that allow things like the Holocaust to happen. People just don't have any worth. The Jews are just worthless, vagabond people. They're not even humans, they're half-humans and then you get something like the holocaust or you get slavery or you get i mean all these things are these these affronts to the image of god here he is reiterating that you have more value so he says don't be afraid to confess me before men he says you should not fear men you have value god is intimately involved in you you should not Fear what man can do to you. He says, so confess me before men and I will confess you before my father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my father, which is in heaven. Now, again, sometimes we get into this and people and it kind of gets down a little bit further. We'll probably talk about it more there. But, you know, there is this principle that Christ teaches here that is said over and over again in different areas. Confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. Deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And sometimes people want to take that and then they want to launch off into these arguments or debates about, well, what does it really mean to deny him? And does that mean it's you and all this stuff? This is what we really need to go back to, which we try to go back to this whole time. Whatever the denial is, this goes back to Mark chapter 16, okay? Whatever the denial is, it's not a good thing, Okay? So we can argue about temporalness, eternalness. We can talk about whatever the consequences may be. What matters is is that we're not supposed to do it. Okay? So let's let's just brainstorm this for a second. How good do we think it would be to be denied whatever request we were requesting by God? Now, there's a lot of times you feel things or people may feel things like, well, I just don't feel like my prayers are being answered. I don't feel like God's listening. You know, I'm, pre- I'm praying to the ceiling kind of a deal. Has anyone thought that felt good? Anyone thought that was a good situation? Anybody felt like that was like, okay, well, this is okay. I can live with this and this feels good. and I'm glad that I'm cut off from communication with my father. Does, any- Does anybody think that's a good thing? So whether, it, you know, debating about if it's eternal or not doesn't really matter. Debating about whether it's timely or not doesn't matter. We should not be doing it. That's really what's the point here. That's what Christ was making. He was saying, you are to confess me before men and nothing should dissuade you from that. No fear of man should dissuade you from that. No worry about man should dissuade you from that. And that denying me has consequences. Just like he says over in Mark, that when you do, that those who believe and are baptized are saved, those who do not are damned. And people say, well, what does that damn mean? It means damned, and it's not a good thing. So we need to do what he commands us to do. So he goes forward and he makes this point over and over again. He says, i am not come to send peace on the earth. I came to send not peace, but a sword for I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be of their own household. That was referencing back to Micah. And he says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh up nor taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me, and that and and he that receiveth a prophet in the prophet's name shall receive a prophet's reward, and he that receiveth a righteous man's name a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give a drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. So when you're looking at this example that Christ is giving, he gave us father, mother, brother, sister, your own personal self-will. He said, there is nothing in these examples, there is nothing that he gave that said, hey, you know what? It's okay. I understand. That was your son. It's okay. You can can just let this whole following me thing slide. I get it. It's inconvenient for you. It's inconvenient for your family. It's inconvenient for your job. It's inconvenient for your own personal self-growth or whatever you want to consider. I get that. So don't worry about it. It's okay. You know, it doesn't matter in the end. It's all by grace and it doesn't matter whether you take up your cross. It doesn't matter whether you confess me. It doesn't matter whether you follow after me. As long as you're happy and your family's good and your job's good and your personal life is good. Well, that's, that's really what I'm more concerned about. He doesn't say that. All of this is teaching that there are real life consequences that come from following jesus you look at what these people did they didn't just say oh i think i'm gonna be a christian today sounds like a good thing to do i live in the south okay so you know everybody else is a christian i might as well be a christian you know as long as it doesn't rock my world too much or make me have to change too many things you know i'll be okay with it christ's teaching here teaches a dramatic and revolutionary change that happens in our lives and a willingness by us to follow through with that when it comes to really hard, difficult situations. He says this is going to sometimes split fathers and sons. This is sometimes going to split mothers and daughters. Says So this is not some light, easy-go-lucky thing. And really, you know, if you look at this in other places in the world, you look at believers who are in areas that are growing up in, let's say, maybe in a Muslim-majority country, okay? Or maybe like in China, where there's, you know, the state persecution, which is, you know, it's there, state persecution of, of the church in that way. For someone to come out as a believer in Jesus Christ and profess that even amongst their family, can mean they're cast out. You're cut off. You could be thrown in prison. You know, we look at it here and we've got this kind of American westernized view of it, like, well, choosing to be a Christian is just as much as choosing an Alabama or an Auburn fan, and sometimes easier in that case. That you're more likely to get cut off for choosing to be an Auburn fan in an Alabama family or vice versa if you're if you're in this part of the in this part of the country. Okay? Yeah. Make sure you got that football thing right because everything else doesn't matter. But we look at other places of the country where it's just not so easy for us. And you realize that this goes on every day. We may look at it and go, well, how do I work this into my worldview here? How do I work this whole father and son thing into my... Because really that's not the case because my mama and daddy, my grandmother and all this way back, we're just like a whole historical lineage of churchgoers. But I will tell you that even people who have grown up in the church, there is times when you will have division based on a child or a father or someone who is truly trying to seek Jesus. There is a huge problem with. Growing up where we grow up in the sense that there can just be this idea of cultural Christianity. People who just, we just go to church because it's Christmas or it's Easter or because that's just what we do on Sunday. But really living a life based off of what Jesus Christ taught is not really what we're seeking after. We still do what we want to do. We live how we want to live. We do show up on church on Sunday, but then you know we're right back at it the next week. Well, that's not what Christ is teaching here. He's not teaching some cultural Christianity. He's not teaching some kind of fluffy, religious feel-goodism. He is teaching something that required great sacrifice. He's saying that there are things you're going to have to quit. There are things you're going to have to cut out. There are things you're going to have to... You know, the imagery he gives us here of taking up your cross, I guess sometimes, at least in my mind or... And probably in others, too. When you think about taking up your cross, I think sometimes we think about just like throwing the cross on our shoulders and walking down the road like some people do. Okay? You know, the phrase to take up your cross is not that you're taking up some religious burden to carry. Taking up a cross meant that you were crucifying yourself. Okay? To take up the cross is to crucify yourself. To be crucified. And it's not to carry a cross around. It's to be Crucified. Now, Christ took up his cross, okay? And that's not when he was carrying it up to Golgotha. That's when he was placed on the cross and crucified for our sins, okay? We take up our cross in the sense that we are crucifying ourselves to ourselves, okay? So we are crucifying our self-will. We are crucifying our self-desires. We're crucifying the thing within us that is of the flesh that says... I want to follow what I want to do, okay? And if it gets hard, I don't want to do it. And if it's not in my time, in my framework, in what feels good to me, then I'm not going to do it. Well, what Christ is telling us here, you have to lose that life. And by losing it, He doesn't mean that you lose it in your closet with your keys. He means you kill it in sacrificial crucifixion style, okay? That has to die. We were crucified with Christ. That's what... Paul says, we are slaying our old life in that way. So when he says here that he that is not taking up his cross and following after me is not worthy of me, he's saying, you have to follow me, which means that the old you has to die, okay? So that's where the idea of taking up your cross comes from. But that also falls in line with everything else he was saying. This may mean, as he says, that I've brought a sword to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers... Again, he's using the idea of the family because it was the most close-knit thing in most of these people's lives. And he says, if it comes down to following your father or following Jesus, who are you going to choose? If it comes down to following your mother or following Jesus, who are you going to choose? If it comes down to following the synagogue leader, following the president, following the conservative religious order, following the liberal theologian, whatever it may be, who are you going to choose? Are you choosing Jesus and what he said, or are you choosing everyone else? Because Christ says those who are worthy of me are the ones that choose me above all others. He says there is no exception There is no open-door policy to whatever you want to do that makes you feel good. In fact, it looks like a very bloody, hard decision to make in this situation. It's not easy. It's It's not glorious. It's not glamorous. It's not something that everybody's just jumping on board with. It requires sacrifice. It requires making decisions that are hard. It requires... Not conti- The idea of the grass is green on both sides and you just get to choose whichever one you want to be, that's not what he's describing here. He's saying, I require commitment. I require you slaying what was and following me in newness of life. And he says, the man or the woman that will lose his life, will slay his life, will die to his self, will crucify his life, Will find his real life in me. So that's what I think is important for us to take away and to walk with in this new year in particular. It's funny because we kind of started going through this at the beginning of the year. We have made it 10 chapters in a year. That's kind of sad in some ways and um, also kind of interesting in others. I guess it's about half because there's, you know, there's 28, something about a third uh, of what we've done. So maybe three years we'll cover the whole section of Matthew. But it's, I think it is important for us as we're going into this new year, think about that. Think about crucifying our lives for Christ, crucifying our self-will for Christ, and making decisions that in some ways seem crazy in that way. They seem crazy into what the world will tell us should be how we go through life you can probably browse through your app store on your phone and you can find a lot of stuff in there that will talk about how you can feel better about yourself. Okay? Make you feel better. Make you feel fulfilled. Make you feel happy. New Year's resolutions are supposed to do that. And this next year, I'm going to do XYZ because that's going to make me feel better about myself. Well, as you... Go into this new year. What Christ will tell us is you want the best resolution. You want the best way forward. You want the best feeling about yourself that you can have. You kill yourself and you follow me. So that's the most fulfilling, the most God honoring, the most joyful, the most peaceful thing that we can do. So maybe in this new year, maybe God will bless us with strength and ability to do that. So may God bless us to continue to think on these things.